Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, A Changed Life. All right, so I want to begin my message today with a bold assertion. Here it is, right here. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith that can be proven by a mountain of evidence. I want to say that again. I really want you to get that. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith that can be proven by a mountain of evidence. When a person honestly considers, for example, the textual evidence in terms of the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts, the number of manuscripts, the huge number of manuscripts that we have and how close they are to uh, the original documents. When a person honestly evaluates uh, the archaeological evidence for the Christian faith in terms of what has been unearthed and how that matches what we see in the Bible. When somebody um, um, uh, honestly considers what's known as the teleological evidence in terms of the order and design we see in our solar system and our planet, planet Earth and our human body. Ladies and gentlemen, if there's design, there's a designer. Something doesn't come from nothing. <laughs> okay, and so when you consider the teleological evidence and then when you consider, honestly, the historical evidence concerning the real life, the real death, the real resurrection seen by over 500 eyewitnesses of a man named Jesus Christ in the first century. When you consider all this evidence and more, the Christian faith becomes very compelling. I'm not gonna preach on apologetics this morning, but I do wanna say that if you have not considered the evidence for yourself, you need to. You need to get to a place where you stop doubting and you start trusting this book and the author of this book and some resources that can help you some other books written by men uh, but very helpful for us uh, for example is the case for christ lee strobel as many of you know was an investigative journalist for the chicago tribune he was an atheist he got mad because his wife got saved and started going to church so he set out using his investigative skills to prove that Christianity was a farce. And as he set out to prove that Christianity was false, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. That tends to happen when you start to study things like this. And so he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. By the way, they made a movie out of it. Many of you have seen it. Some of you haven't. If you haven't, it's great, great acting, The Case for Christ. He also wrote a book called The Case for the Creator, that's Lee Strobel. And by the way, I don't mind if you pull out your phone and take a picture of this, um, but uh, another book, I like it because it's small and it's cheap. It's called Know Why You Believe by Paul Little. Paul Little um, went home to be with the Lord, I think in 1975, but he influenced great minds like Ravi Zacharias and J.P. Moreland. And so this is a really good book uh, for those of you who are just beginning with apologetics. I highly recommend Know Why You Believe, Paul E. Little. And then, um, of course, the classic, one of my favorites, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis, think about this, has, has been with the Lord now for well over half a century, and yet every Christian bookstore you go to in the Western world has a section with C.S. Lewis. The books just keep selling. And Mere Christianity has impacted millions of lives, and I strongly encourage you to get that book um, by C.S. Lewis, The Oxford Don. 
And then um, if you're uh, into books that are over 700 pages, <laughs> then you can get The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, or you may wanna spend the money and just have that as a reference book um, in your library. Now, in addition to these resources, I'm gonna say it again, Man, 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 you gotta get this. I encourage you to get a study Bible. Because ladies and gentlemen, how many of you know that when you're reading the Bible, sometimes you just don't understand what you're reading? And sadly, many Christians say, well, forget it, I can't understand this. And they close the Bible never to read it again. And it can be easily fixed, just get a study Bible. There's lots of really solid study Bibles. I personally use the Ryrie, R-Y-R-I-E, Ryrie Study Bible ESV version. I have my devotions in that. And so I read the scriptures and I read the notes on the bottom of the page. And so the notes in the front of the Ryrie Study Bible, in the back, pages and pages of notes, and the, the notes on the bottom of the pages are very helpful. It's so important that you make sure you understand the biblical text by reading the corresponding notes underneath the biblical text. So once again, in addition to the textual evidence, the archeological evidence, the teleological evidence, the historical evidence, there's another source of evidence that we can consider and it's called the transformational evidence. The transformational evidence has to do with changed lives. The question I have for you this morning is, has Jesus Christ changed your life? Amen. Has he really changed your life or is this just a religious thing that you're doing? It's just, you know, just coming to church to check a box or to appease your conscience or whatever it is, or have you met Jesus and has he, has he really changed your life? I quote it almost every week, right? Second Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, behold, the new has come. And so when you consider the millions of testimonies of real lives that have been changed by Jesus Christ, there is one testimony in the last 2,000 years that arguably shines brighter than any other testimony. And it's the testimony of Saul of Tarsus, better known as the Apostle Paul. And so as we learned last week, Saul of Tarsus was an up and coming Jewish scholar. He was very proud of his Jewish heritage. In fact, in his own words, he said in Philippians three, that I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, the Mosaic law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And so Saul was so zealous for his brand of religion, he literally persecuted those who disagreed with him. He persecuted those who taught something different than what he taught. Therefore, he persecuted the church. And so we saw last week that he was so angry with the people that were going around the synagogues, the Jewish people who met Jesus and were going into synagogues on Saturday proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus the Son of God. Saul became so angry with those guys, those ladies who were spreading the word of Jesus, he went to Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem. He got letters of authority to go to Damascus and hunt down believers and bind them and arrest them and put them in prison. And so, we remember this from last week. He's on his way to Damascus. 
And something happens that forever changes his life. He and his men are approaching the city and all of a sudden a light from heaven, uh, brighter than the noonday sun, begins to flash around Saul and the armed guards that went with him to kick down the doors in Damascus and arrest Christians. This light from heaven knocks them down on the dirt and all of a sudden Saul hears this voice. As I said last week, I like to picture this as Jesus putting his foot in the back of Saul's neck. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, he's alive. It's not a fairy tale. He's alive. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And at that moment, Everything changed. The proud Pharisee finds himself groveling on the dirt, blinded by the light, and he hears the voice again, rise, enter into the city, and it'll be told what you are to do. And so he gets up, he can't see, so they have to lead him by hand into the city. They lead him into the house of Judas, and he's sitting there in the dark three days. He won't eat, he won't drink. He's just praying and processing what in the world just happened to me. My whole world has been turned upside down. Now, last week we read verses 20 through 22, and we saw the changes that immediately started taking place in this guy's life. And so by way of review, jump back to chapter nine, verse 20. Chapter nine, verse 20, and so if you're looking at that verse, please say amen. amen. And just, just a note for our visitors is this is what we do most of the time. We just go through the Bible, the books of the Bible, verse by verse. That's why it's important that you bring a Bible or at least pull it up on your phone and follow along. And so immediately, Saul, because this is after he got saved, immediately he proclaimed who in the synagogues? Jesus. Saying, this is a miracle, <laughs> this guy is saying this, that he is the son of God. He went from saying he's a false prophet and now he's saying he's the son of God. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed. And they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength, spiritual strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, not just preaching, but proving, so important that we get to a place in our biblical knowledge where we can prove that Jesus was the Christ. And so after being converted to Christ, Saul's life drastically changed. And this is where we ended last week. We saw that the fruit of his genuine conversion, verse 11, was that he prayed to the Lord. Verse 16, that Jesus said, he will suffer for me. Verse 17, look at this. He was filled with the Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit? It's one of the fruit. It's the evidence of a genuine conversion. That he was baptized in water, after he believed. Has that happened in your life? He fellowshiped with believers. He shared his faith with others. He increased in spiritual strength. Now this is just the beginning. We're just a few verses after he gets saved. We got the rest of Acts to study. And as we study the book of Acts, we're gonna see that this guy goes on three missionary journeys Right? He preaches so many messages, wins so many converts, 
disciples so many Christians, raises up so many pastors, plants so many churches, thank God, writes so many letters, the Pauline epistles in your New Testament, and he suffers, suffers, suffers. I think probably more than any other apostle, this guy suffers for the cause of Christ. Now again, look at the changes in his life. This is, this is uh, pretty profound here. He went from persecuting the faith to what? You tell me. Preaching the faith. First, Jesus is a false prophet from the hills of Galilee, and now he's the son of God. He went from killing Christians to what? You tell me. Hanging out with Christians. And we're gonna find out in a minute, at first, they don't want anything to do with him, they're afraid of him, but nonetheless, they warm up to him after a while. And then the predominant attitude among many Jews in the first century was that Jews were up here and Gentiles were down here. And knowing Saul in his BC days, we have nothing that would persuade us that he thought any different. And so he goes from looking down on Gentiles to what, you tell me? Loving Gentiles, because Saul of Tarsus comes to the realization that we're all, everybody say all, all created in God's image. Therefore, we are all equal before the Lord. And by the way, Jesus died for the whole world. And so Peter becomes the missionary to the Jews and Saul becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. And then at the bottom of your screen, he goes from emphasizing the Mosaic law to what, you tell me? Emphasizing grace. So this guy thought he could really keep those 613 commandments found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I can keep these and I can work my way to heaven. That's called religion. It'll send you to hell, by the way. And he comes to a place where now he understands that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we're sinners. Doesn't matter how many good works that we do, we've fallen short of the glory of God. We need a savior. Jesus loves us. He came, he died, he rose again, paid for our sins. And now as Priscilla sang the last song, it's finished, it's done, and we can receive him and be saved forever. That's good news. That's great news. Now, check this out. How does this happen? How in the world can this happen to somebody? It happened because he really did meet Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, you need to know, getting back to apologetics, skeptics don't know what to do with this. They just can't refute the transformational evidence of Saul's changed life, which, by the way, is yet another proof that Christian faith is authentic, it's genuine, it's true. In his book, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell wrote about two British men from the 18th century that set out, like Lee Strobel, to destroy the Christian faith. By the way, this is another great little book we give away to visitors, and I encourage you to, um, to read this as well, but Nonetheless, listen to this. Two Oxford-educated friends, author Gilbert West and statesman Lord George Littleton, were determined to destroy the basis of the Christian faith. Isn't it, by the way, pretty arrogant in the 18th century? Yeah, I know they went to Oxford, but isn't it kind of arrogant to think in the 18th century that we can destroy the Christian faith? 
Where do people get off at attacking Christ and attacking the word, thinking that they're smarter or they're better? It's all, it's all rooted in pride. And yet, check out what happens. It says that Gilbert West was going to demonstrate the fallacy of the resurrection of Jesus and Littleton was going to prove that Saul of Tarsus never converted to Christianity. And so they studied and studied and researched and researched and guess what happens? You, you, you probably know. Both men came to a complete turnaround in their position and became ardent followers of Jesus Christ. So be real careful if you try to set out to destroy the Christian faith. Lord Littleton concluded that if Paul's 25 years of suffering and service for Christ were a reality, that his conversion was true, for everything Paul did began with that sudden change, speaking about meeting Christ. And if Paul's conversion was true, then Jesus Christ rose from the dead for everything Paul uh, was and did, he attributed to his witnessing the risen Christ. And so Lord Littleton had the audacity to set out to try to destroy the Christian faith by trying to prove that Saul of Tarsus never did meet Jesus. And he researched and he researched and by the end of the research, this is, what his, this is, this is his conclusion. Quote, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone duly considered was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Amen. How do we know? Ladies and gentlemen, why are you here? Why did you get up today and come to this building? I, I have a sneaking suspicion is because you actually believe this is true. Amen. And it's not a fairy tale. And how do we know this is true? Again, it's because of the evidence. I wanna say it again, I wanna put it down in your hearts. The textual evidence concerning the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts. I challenge you to get into that subject. Discover how many manuscripts we have and how close they were written to the original manuscripts. The, the proof, the evidence of the archeological evidence in terms of what's been unearthed. Go with us to Israel. We'll take you to archeological site to archeological site and we'll match the scriptures with what you see right there in Capernaum. Look down, they, they dug down in the first century and there's um, the, the rocks of the synagogue that Jesus went into and cast a demon out of a man. I, I challenge you to check out the teleological evidence in terms of the order and design in our solar system, our planet, our human bodies. Again, something can't come from nothing. If there's design, there's a designer. And I challenge you to check out the historical evidence in terms of the real life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and check out the transformational evidence in terms of the changed life of the apostle Paul and millions of other people who've met Jesus Christ, he is real. Now, before we move on to verse 23, you need to know that in between verse 22 and 23, scholars believe three years passed. And that's why I have in my Bibles between those two verses, three years between verse 22 and verse 23. So if you're taking notes concerning Saul's early years, uh, between verses uh, 22 and 23 in Acts chapter nine, 
there's this period that Luke calls many days, many days. In fact, I'll read, I'll read verse 23 and show you. He says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, to kill Saul. And so what happened in between these two verses? Luke, for whatever reason, who's a doctor and a historian, who, who um, interviewed many, many eyewitnesses to write the book of Acts, and by the way, the gospel of Luke. And so Luke, for whatever reason, he just says many days. He doesn't get into Saul's early years. And so what happened during those three years? Well, praise the Lord, Saul, that's his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name, he tells us in Galatians 1. So I want, to, I want you to hold your place in Acts 9. I want you to turn right and go on over to Galatians chapter 1, and let's find out what happened during these three years. So Galatians chapter one and verse 11. Paul writing to the church of Galatia. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Verse 12, for I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it, <laughs> but I received it through a revelation of who? You tell me. Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now here it is right here. What happened during the three years after Saul, verse 16, met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into what? Arabia. And returned again to Damascus. Verse 18, then after how many years? So this is where we get three years from Saul's conversion until the time he finally goes down to Jerusalem, the time he spent in Damascus and Arabia was three years in between Acts 9, 22 and 23. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And for some reason, people thought, Saul or Paul was lying, and so he had to say in verse 20, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And so as you read these verses in Galatians chapter one, here's what you find out. After Saul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he stayed in Damascus. But at some point, he goes out to Arabia. 
Now don't think in terms of Saudi Arabia today, Arabia is what's known as Nabataean Arabia. I want you to picture in your mind a, a map of the Middle East and picture in your mind the Sinai Peninsula, right? You got Egypt over here and then you got the Sinai Peninsula here and from the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula all the way up, 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 hundreds of miles east of the Jordan River, all the way up to Damascus, Syria, that whole area when this was written in um, Acts chapter nine, the first century, all that area is called Nabataean Arabia. And so Saul didn't necessarily pack a bag and go 300 plus miles all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. No, when he went to Arabia, I personally believe that he kind of just went on a camping trip. He packed his bags and just went a few miles southeast of Damascus. That was considered, at that time, Nabataean Arabia. But the main point is this. If you're with me, say amen. The main point is that after he gets saved, he did not go immediately to Jerusalem to be discipled by the apostles. No, he went to Arabia to be discipled by Jesus Christ. Now stay with me here because this is one of those Christianity 101 things that's so important as you understand the Pauline epistles in your New Testament, you understand the word of God. Listen, he went to Arabia and he met with Jesus and Jesus gave him the gospel. And praise the Lord, later on when he does meet Peter and James and John, their gospels match. We thank God for that, right? So we still have one Christian religion. But nonetheless, Jesus gave him the gospel. Look again at Galatians 1 verse 11. Galatians 1 verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so before Saul went out to Arabia, you need to know that he already had an amazing grasp of what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. He's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's a distinguished rabbi. He knows the Old Testament, but he had to take another look at those same Old Testament scriptures with new eyes, eyes of faith, because now he knows Jesus is the Messiah. And so what is he doing? He's looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? He's all over that thing. <laughs> and so I want you to picture Saul of Tarsus in Arabia on a camping trip, sitting by a fire in the middle of this wilderness all by himself. And as he's pouring over the parchments, not a leather bound Bible, no, they had scrolls and bags. And he's, he's looking at Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Daniel 9, a hundred other places. And as he's reading, he's, I bet you tears are welling up in his eyes and he's saying, this is all about Jesus. Amen. Christ through the whole Bible. Genesis through Revelation. And so as he's praying and studying in the wilderness, in the desert, he receives from Jesus New Testament truth. Now I want you to, I want you to get this. Saul, Paul, went into the desert with Old Testament knowledge, but he came out of the desert with what? This is exciting to me. He goes out into the desert with his amazing knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, but while he's out there, Jesus gives him the gospel. Jesus gives him New Testament truth. Listen, if you're with me here, say amen. amen. Don't, 
Let your mind wander. Get this right here as he's out in the early years of his, of his Christian life, probably out while he's in Arabia in the desert. What happens is that the Lord gives him the theological truth that we find in Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The Pauline epistles, the theology that's in there was given to Paul by Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. The question is, are you building your life on the word of God? Because I don't mean to be a weatherman this afternoon, but here's what I know. Storms are coming to your life. Storms are coming. It's not if they come, it's when they come. And the question is, if you're not building your life on the word of God, you're gonna have problems. I'm saying this from a heart of love for the people. Listen to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine by the way, it's not just the red letters in the Gospels. How many of you believe the whole thing's his word? All right? Including the Pauline epistles, the theology of all those books that I just named. It's the word of God. Jesus gave that to Paul. All right, so listen to this again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. People say, Jesus, can you stop being so negative all the time and just just be positive, just give us positive things. No, 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 no. We live in a fallen world, there's a real devil and storms are coming. And he says that if you're building your house on the sand, your house, i.e. your life will fall and great was the fall of it. And so if you are reading, hearing, applying the word of God to your life, then here's what's happening. You're building your your life on the rock, the rock of Jesus, the rock of his word. And here's the good news, that when, not if, when those storms of life come, and they come to everybody, and that wind blows, and, and it beats against your house, what's gonna happen is you're gonna weather the storm. You're gonna stand, not because you're so strong, but because he is so strong, and the word of God is in your heart, it's being lived out in your life. But if you're ignoring, not hearing, not reading, not listening to these words of mine and you're not applying them, you're building your house, your life on sand. And not if, but when those storms come, what's gonna happen is that wind's gonna start to blow and you're gonna start to teeter and you're gonna start to shift and you're gonna be like, oh no, oh no. And all of a sudden, boom, collapse, fall. Now, when that happens, don't blame God. It's not his fault, it's your fault because you didn't build your life on the rock. Build your life on the rock. Ladies and gentlemen, how many Christians are there 
that do not even read the word of God or they don't even listen to it. They have no problem going to churches where they give motivational speeches, motivational talks. But guess what? Motivational talks and motivational books will help you very little when the storms of life come. But this, God's word, it'll help you stay strong and weather the storms. And so get into God's word, make a plan. You hear not just me, Pastor Will, Pastor Mike, Pastor Matt, all the pastors, when we have opportunities to share, you hear this, this common theme all the time, personal devotions. You got to get with Jesus every day in quiet time and open this book up. And if you can't understand it, get a study Bible and take the word of God in. And then more importantly, go live it out in your life. Amen? Amen. All right, so Saul, yeah, we can thank God for that. He spends three years in Damascus and Syria, and now we pick it up in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him <laughs> in a basket. And so here we have these Damascus Jews. For the better part of three years or so, I don't know how long he was in Arabia and I don't know how long he was in Damascus. We don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us, but for that time period, Saul's in the synagogue and he's not just preaching, he's proving that Jesus is the son of God and there's some Jews who are accepting, but some Jews are rejecting Jesus. And they decide if we can't beat this guy in a debate, well, if you can't, Beat them, join them, no, kill them. <laughs> they wanna kill them. But thank God, how many of you guys are, help, are, are glad that we get by with a little help from our friends, right? And so the Christian brothers in Damascus said, Paul, you're out of here. And so they put him in this big, large basket through a window and they lower him down and he takes off and he's on his way now to Jerusalem. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, okay? He goes down to Jerusalem, mega church is down there. Remember, thousands of Christians, and I know they don't call them Christians until Antioch, but you get the idea, followers of Jesus. He goes down to the church in Jerusalem. Now check out halfway through verse 26, look at the response he gets. And they were all, what of him? Afraid. Afraid. For they did not believe that he was really a disciple. And so he goes down to Jerusalem is a problem. The church, the Christians are afraid of him. I can see it. Someone walks into the church service. Hey, Saul of Tarsus wants to come and meet everybody. And instead of getting, yay, everybody's like, what? Uh-uh. Are you kidding me? This is a trap. How do we know he's not just saying he's a Christian, but, but really he wants to find out where we're meeting so he can come in here and arrest all of us. It's like, don't you remember what he did to Uncle Joe and Aunt Hannah and kick down their doors and drug them to prison? No, no, he's not coming anywhere near us. And I, I want you to think this through. Put yourself in Saul's sandals. He's in quite a predicament. The Jews, I'm sorry, the Christians, the Christians did not want him because of his 
former life. And the Jews, they don't want him because of his new life in Christ. Nobody wants him. He's like all alone in the world. He needs a friend. That leads us to verse 27. But, shout out his name. Praise God for Barney, a true friend. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how in Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so we were introduced to Barnabas back in chapter four and we found out that his name means son of encouragement. And so this guy, after Saul goes to Jerusalem and gets a cold shoulder from the church, this guy, he's like, no, 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 I'll meet with you. He meets with him. I'll hear your story. He hears his story. And I'm sure, this is not in the Bible, but I'm sure, because Barnabas is a wise person, I'm sure that he, he sent some letters up to Damascus to make sure that all the details checked out, you know, like a background check. And so Barnabas believes Saul. He becomes a true friend. Don't you know sometimes we just need somebody to believe in us? See, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was an encouragement to Saul. Barnabas was a true friend when Saul didn't have any friends. And I'm just thinking before we move on to the next verse, how we should all strive to be like Barney, to be like Barnabas, to seek to encourage people who are down, to seek to be a friend to people who don't have many friends. And I'm just wondering, as you come to church, do you always just hang out with your friends around here? As you come to church, are you always just hanging out with your people? Or do you make it one of your goals, Saturday night or Sunday morning or whenever you come, do you make it one of your goals to look for people you don't know, step out of your comfort zone and introduce yourself to that person? That's a good idea. Yeah, we should clap for that one. to be a Barney or a Barnabas, to engage people that you don't know, not always hanging out with the people that you do know. And so if you see somebody and you don't know them and you introduce them and you find out this is my first Sunday, well, well hey, this is great. Let me take you over to our next steps area and meet Pastor Mike or one of his team members. Make sure you get that coffee mug before you leave. You see, the Lord sends visitors to our church and we gotta make sure that these people who probably or may be down in the dumps and maybe don't have a lot of friends, that they, they can find some friends here. Now this is important because listen, I, listen to your pastor's heart right now. I want our church to be real, not fake. I want this, I only get one shot at this. And then I'm dead and I'm in the presence of the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ giving an account as, as far as what I did as a pastor. I want this church to be a real church and not a fake church. And if we're gonna be a real church, that means that we have real people who don't have the number one priority of coming to church, what I can get. It's garbage. The number one motive that you and I have for going to church services, these weekend gatherings, is to never be, what can I get? No. Our number one priority, our number one motive needs to be, what can I give? 
How can I be a blessing? How can I serve? As I said earlier, you know, the people go on mission trips and they're grinning ear to ear. Why? They're happy. Why? Because they get to go serve. And it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so guess what? This is the mission field right here. The Lord sends visitors to our church every week. I know we're in the summer months, but man, in the spring and in the fall, I think it's 40 plus visitors every weekend. We got the mission field right here. But if you come to church and all you're thinking about is what can I get, what can I get, what can I get, and you don't care about the people who you don't even know, then all of a sudden, hey, listen, it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you really wanna be joyful and be happy, come to church to give. Come to church to go to the worship service to actually think about the words and sing them from your heart straight to his heart because you are worthy and I wanna give you praise, Lord. And so this is from my heart, authentically to you. And then when the bucket comes around, instead of being grudgingly or necessity, either online or, or in the bucket, just give cheerfully. Just be a giver. And then during the sermon, I understand, I have to feed the flock of God. And so that part is receiving. But guess what? What's more important than receiving it? Going out and living it. Being a giver. It's all about giving. Not so much about receiving. And so here's what I know. What I know is that the Lord may send a Saul of Tarsus through those front doors. And if that ever happens, I hope he or she finds a church of Barnabases who will love and encourage and lift up that person as they, listen to this, make their journey from being a Saul Maybe to an Apostle Paul, we could have an effect on somebody's life 20, 30 years from now that becomes another Billy Graham or whatever. All right, so I'll, I'll be quiet about that. We gotta move on and finish this up. So look at verse 28. It says, so he went in after he's encouraged by Barnabas, after he's befriended and accepted by the church, Saul's encouraged now, look at verse 28. So he, Saul, went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to what? End of verse 29. Kill him. Everybody wanted to kill this guy. Wherever Paul went, riot or revival? One of the two. Verse 30, and when the brothers, Christian brothers, learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so Saul goes toe-to-toe -to -toe in a debate. I believe in the synagogue of the freedmen, Acts 6-9, the same Hellenist or Greek-speaking Jews that Stephen went toe-to-toe -to -toe with and ate their lunch. Now, Saul's back in Jerusalem in that synagogue, and he's debating. He's sharing that Jesus is the Son of God. And again, they reject, and if you can't beat them, join them. No, if you can't beat them, kill them. And so now they're plotting to kill him. And so the, the Damascus Jews, they wanna kill him. The Jerusalem Jews, they wanna kill him. The Christian brothers, hey, I'll help you. Lower them over the wall or through the window of the wall, escape. And now the brothers in Jerusalem, hey, I'll help you escape, not through a basket, through a ship. Okay, and so what happens is they take him from Jerusalem and they go over to Caesarea on the coast. Beautiful, beautiful area. Talk about archeological digs. Man, if you go with us to Israel, I'll show you, show you that. Absolutely amazing. But then they put Saul of Tarsus on a boat and they're like, goodbye. 
Avoir, right? He goes back home to Tarsus, way up in Sicily. And so Saul's gone now, at least until chapter 11, verse 25. Verse 31 says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Some people like to joke around and say, yeah, because Saul's gone. <laughs> I don't know, I don't think so. But anyway, they had peace and the church was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna fly through the rest of this chapter and then we'll be done. But stay with me to the end. Verse 32, now everything switches over to Peter. It says, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for, look at this, eight years, because he was paralyzed. Can you imagine? Can't move, can't feed himself, can't clothe himself, can't wash himself. Totally dependent, eight years. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Leda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And so this is so exciting to me because what happens here is that Peter is in Leda. So just go 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem and you're in Leda. And the Lord, through Peter, does an amazing miracle causing a paralyzed guy to get up and walk around. Now, if you think that's amazing, now Peter's gonna go over to Joppa on the coast and the Lord's gonna do something even more amazing through him in Joppa. Look at verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So Tabitha in Aramaic, Dorcas in Greek. And she was full of good works and acts of charity. I don't have time, but man, so important we understand that faith without works is dead. And this lady was full of good works and she impacted her church. They loved her in her church, verse 37. And in those days, she became ill. How many of you guys know that quote unquote good people get sick? And she died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Verse 38, since Leda was, not, was near Joppa, just 10 miles away, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside Peter weeping and showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Again, she made such an impact on people's lives. They're weeping, they're crying. Verse 40, but Peter put them all outside. He knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, her Aramaic name. This is why we know that Jesus and disciples spoke in Aramaic. Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. And so here we see Peter is in, first of all, 
Lita, and God does this amazing work through him, giving the ability to move and walk and run and jump to a man who'd been paralyzed for eight years. But then there's an even greater miracle in Joppa because the same Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and through Peter, he raises, the Lord raises this lady up from the dead. Now, she didn't receive a resurrection body like Jesus. Um, this was not resurrection, this was resuscitation, okay? So she was dead, but she did come to life in Joppa. What we're gonna see next week is the greatest miracle of all, go on up from Joppa to Caesarea. Because in Caesarea, ladies and gentlemen, the doors of faith are gonna be opened officially to the Gentiles, like a lot of us. And that's the greatest miracle of all. And you say, Pastor Mike, okay, time out. Why is the miracle in Caesarea the greatest miracle of all? because Cornelius and his family get saved. Well, Pastor Mike, why is that miracle greater than the miracle in Leda where Aeneas is healed or Joppa where Tabitha is raised from the dead? Why is that greater? Here's why, if you're with me, say amen. It's because spiritual healings are eternal, physical healings, they're just temporal. Tabitha was raised from the dead, but guess what? She grew old and died. But Cornelius and his family, when they get saved next week, I can't wait to share this with you next week, but when they get saved next week, listen, their life is eternal life forever. The question is, have you received spiritual life, eternal life, spiritual healing from our Lord Jesus Christ?